Well, oh, that was a bad start. <clears throat> <laughs> Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wad podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're discussing a mega-sized reset button issue known as Excalibur 71, Crossing Swords, a fatal attractions tie-in that has nothing to do with Michael Douglas or Glenn Close, but lots to do with a whole lot of X-Men continuity. Excalibur number 71 was originally published in November 1993, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell on writing, Ken Lashley, Derek Robertson, and Matthew Ryan on pencil. Cam Smith, Randy Elliott, Randy Emberlin, and Mark Nelson on inks, Joe Rojas on colors, Bill Oakley, Pat Brousseau, and Dave Sharp on letters, Susan Gaffney, and Bob Harris on editing. Thank you. Needs a name. It already has a name. Is it from Caliban, the man I sent you to see? No, oh, when I got there, he was dead. I rode many miles until I came to a lake and everywhere there was a mist. I had to stop. And when I did, out of the mist, a woman called to me like a siren. From within the lake, she stretched out her arm. This sword, clutching it. I took the sword and thanked her. She smiled. And slipped back into the water. And as she did, she said, This is the sword of King Arthur. This is Excalibur. Excalibur. 
well, it's official. Excalibur is an X-Men comic now, and we're all just going to have to deal with it. And there's a lot of it to deal with today. Thankfully, we have a colorful cast of very unique and not at all indistinguishable personalities who are up to the challenge. As you do in 90s superhero comics, we will introduce ourselves with our abilities before the battle commences. Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. My special abilities include discussing representations of gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture and very unofficially PR managing the career of Mr. Kurt Wagner. I am joined as always by Mav. Remind us of your powers. So that's our coverage of Fatal Attractions, the X-Men crossover. Joining us next week, so we'll be, um, wait, are we not done with the episode? Are we just like, <laughs> I thought we were just going to start at the very end of something that we have no context for. Um, <laughs> hi, I'm Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. And if you wait, 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 wait. To I'm going to stop you there, Mav. Mav, mm -hmm. Doctor, yeah. Doctor Christopher Maverick. I'm really bad at that. <laughs> I, 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 I tend, I mean, I, I tend to forget from time to time. Oh yeah, yeah, I guess so. Fine, okay. I'm Doctor Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and that doesn't flow off the tongue as well. So mm -hmm. get used <laughs> to it. Too many syllables. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's um, this is weird because like you know you've been listening to the show before, so you know who I am. You've heard me before, but this comic presents itself like maybe you don't. Maybe you don't care about anything that's happened in the previous seventy-three issues, and it was just a new start. So hi, if you've not heard me before, uh, uh study comics and sexuality and pop culture and culture and digital media and lots of stuff and i talk about it here and on another show called box podcast and that's who i am it's really convoluted like this book later on in the show <laughs> i'll be wrong i'll be drawn by a different person entirely and then i'll just kind of float around it's gonna be it's gonna be fun you're gonna have so many different hairstyles before this before this episode is over if Absolutely. only the listeners could see <laughs> i'm gonna change outfits in the middle of scenes too i'm just gonna just mm -hmm. just I'm just going to change my clothes. Nobody can see me, but I'm just, um, trust me, I'm doing it. <laughs> Very similar outfits to what I was wearing before, but not exactly the same. Color scheme just flip around. Sometimes I'll be wearing a mask. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, please reintroduce your abilities. I, I just want to first say that I think our, our slogan for the podcast should be that we've been doing this so long that Mav got a PhD. While we were doing it. <laughs> But hey, I'm Dr. J. Anderdeman. I am co-project lead for Sequential Scholars and an instructor and now member of the Board of Governors for St. Jerome's University, where Ooh. I am in week two of being a one-man comic studies department. And I had two students yesterday from two different classes both want to show me their personal artwork, which is always Ooh. the most adorable and heartening thing. So I'm riding that high right into unapologetically defending this issue, which I think is genuinely a great comic. Great. And I'll Ooh. leave that dangling. Oh, <laughs> that is quite an adjective. I I will get back to that, but let's introduce our guest first. So we are joined this week by an amazing returning guest who knows his X-Men back to front and probably upside down and side to side. The pod is thrilled to welcome back Austin Gordon. Welcome, Austin. Hello, everybody. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me back. I will reintroduce you to our listeners. Austin last joined us in our episode for Excalibur number 57, so not too long ago. Austin Gordon has been reviewing every issue of every X-book in publication order, one issue at a time, since 2009 on his website, The Real Gentleman of Leisure. He's currently about to start in on 1997. He has also written for sites like ComicsXF and Comic Book Herald. He also co-hosts the podcast, a very special episode, which discusses very special episodes from across the history <laughs> of television. So we did your comics order 
origin story last time, Austin, but I know today's issue of Excalibur is in some sense your Excalibur origin story or very directly your Excalibur origin story because I believe you said it was the first issue you picked up back in the day. So let me ask you about that. Like what got you to pick up Excalibur? Do you have a memory of buying this? <clears throat> I do have a memory of buying this and sad to say the what got me to pick it up. Um, it was the holograms, I, I, wasn't it? It's the holograms. <laughs> almost. Yeah. I, I mean, I fell for it. It's a crossover. <laughs> this is the last <laughs> chapter of Fatal Attractions and I had read and bought all of the other chapters of Fatal Attractions. And up until this point, I had mostly, I had just ignored Excalibur. It was a little bit more expensive than the other issues because it was the, you know, ad-free. And so it was, I think, maybe a buck 75 versus a buck and a quarter. And, you know, I was 12, so it was trying to stretch that allowance as far as it could go. And Excalibur wasn't really an x-men comic yet as you said they had former x-men characters but they weren't you could skip it and not feel like you were missing anything that was going on in the world of the x-men but then this issue comes along and it's part six of this big crossover that i've been reading and so i'm like okay i guess i have to now pick up excalibur and i did so bob harris you win this round <laughs> and they screwed you over. Wait, because this is a hologram cover of a larger issue, so not not even a dollar seventy five. This was four bucks. This was a good three ninety five yes. cover price. They just they just oh, made wow. you pay for it. Well, and see, there's a there's a, another layer to the story that when you you mentioned the price, I distinctly remember that I purchased this comic at the Mall of America back when the Mall of America had three different stores that sold comic books. And I don't know that there's anything wow. that says speculator bubble of the 1990s, <laughs> like there being three <laughs> stores that sell comic books at the Mall of America. And I picked I was there with some friends and picked went to one of those those stands and there were two comics there that I hadn't already bought at some point you know in my runs to my local shop that I usually went to this issue and the first issue of the Gambit limited series oh. which oh, wow. also had a like foil embossed cover and was also ridiculously expensive compared to a regular issue. And so I had enough money after whatever else we were doing at the mall to buy this or Gambit number one. And I bought this <laughs> instead of Gambit number one. I do not regret that decision. Uh, I have since read that Gambit miniseries and for all of this issue's flaws, I would much rather read it than that. And yeah, so that's, that's where I got this comic. And I distinctly remember like in the van, in my friend's mom's van, driving home from the mall, reading this comic for the first time. Oh my God. <laughs> Do you remember your reaction to it? I mean, did it just seem like a regular X-Men comic? Like, did you know these characters already and everything? Yeah. I mean, I knew Kitty and Nightcrawler and Rachel from the classic x-men backups i guess like the classic x-men the reprints because i was reading that um which was kind of in the claremont john romita jr era at this point mm -hmm. so i knew them i knew them from the trading cards all that kind of stuff and they're really it i mean there isn't as i'm sure we'll talk about all of the alan davis stuff is is gone and so it was just like three x-men characters and then a bunch of x-men guest stars who of course i knew because i'd read all the chapters of of fatal attractions leading up to this but from that pers from the perspective of was this accessible to someone who knew the x-men but not excalibur it yeah. succeeded 
No, I mean, I definitely could see that. I mean, we were kind of discussing before today's episode about, well, we're, we're already like getting into first impressions clearly, but you know, our different mileage on this issue. And I was like, it accomplishes a lot in terms of like weaving Excalibur yes. into the X-Men universe. And I give it total props for that. It is a very successful comic in terms of what it sets out to accomplish. That That is my faint praise. <laughs> I'm going to complain about it a little bit, but, <laughs> but we will definitely give Andrew a chance to to um, defend it. Uh, do you want to just get right into the issue summary and then we'll talk a little bit about the Fatal Attractions event and sort of come back for some first impressions because we got so much comic to talk about today. I do want to get right into it. Um, so maybe maybe let's just do that and and get into all of these many, many plot points and and continuity points and character relationships that are, that are solidified here as we head into Excalibur's new era. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. In the interest of making sure our brains are all properly calibrated for the cavalcade ahead, let's start today's rebirth with a plot summary. So Austin graciously helped me out with the summary this week. Um, We'll see how we do. Excalibur number 71 opens with Excalibur helping round up the prisoners who escaped from the Muir Island brig as a result of Magneto's EM blast, as seen in other Fatal Attractions tie-in comics. Kurt almost kills Spoor. There's a cliff and rains and lots of hair and teeth. It's all very dramatic. Then Professor X, Cyclops, and Jean Grey arrive on the island needing Kitty's help. Xavier believes that Colossus may be suffering brain damage as a result of a recent injury, because why else would anyone ever possibly disagree with Professor X about anything? (laughs) Anyway, they want Kitty to lure Peter to the island so they can heal his wound, in the hopes that he will then leave the Acolytes and return to the X-Men. Kitty reluctantly agrees. When Peter teleports to the island, Excalibur managed to capture him. Meanwhile, Cable arrives on the island, looking for revenge on the Acolytes, and ends up fighting with past-slash-future adopted mom slash sister Rachel Summers. As the X-Men manage to heal Peter's injury, a group of acolytes appear looking for Peter. A fight breaks out, ending with Colossus calling it off. Though he's fully healed, he nonetheless decides to return to Avalon with the acolytes and bids a sad farewell to Kitty before teleporting away. In the wake of his departure, Kurt announces that Excalibur is going to stay on Muir Island. He says Excalibur are going to use Muir Island as a base of operations with a mission to stop mutant-related problems before they happen, rather than managing problems after they occur. Is it preemptive justice or superheroes of social work or maybe it won't matter at all we're told to stay tuned for more adventures with the new Excalibur team okay let's just jump into these first impressions because we already got talking about it a little bit before we started recording so I'll come to you first Austin you seemed a little bit lukewarm on this issue and yet you clearly have the nostalgic affection for it what was your reaction to rereading this issue for this time around yeah so I definitely both this time and when I reviewed this on my site coming as issue 71 of Excalibur versus issue one of my Excalibur. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, So yeah, I mean, the nostalgia is there and I do still have some affection for this issue. And I think there are parts of it that work really well, but returning to it with that full knowledge of what came before, it is a shame that so much of the Alan Davis stuff had to be jettisoned. I, I like mm-hmm. I like the idea of this new direction um, without getting too spoilery about how well it plays out in the future. I, I, I like what, where they're going and I like the idea of integrating Excalibur with the X-Men. I think it was, it made sense for them to be off on their own and then it stopped making sense 
and then it continued to yeah. be off on its own well after that point. And so both as a kid and now, I do appreciate the idea of, yeah, let's let's let them interact with these characters. Let's let them acknowledge their existence and team up and do crossovers and all that kind of stuff. I just don't think that you had to get rid of some of those other characters and yeah. plot lines and things like that to make it happen. And then there's just a big, I mean, this issue's kind of a mess artistically, and that's a yeah. whole other thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I like and hate that in the sense that I'm trying to embrace the 90s-ness of the era now that we've arrived at it, and I like a number of the individual artists here, but yeah, they don't necessarily mesh as well as they could have in terms of sort of breaks with character styling and that kind of thing. But again, either you're going to lean into that and embrace it, or you're going to be bothered by it. I'm I'm actually leaning towards embracing that aspect of the comic. And this is, this is me being somewhat nitpicky, but what really gets me... Even more than the style is just you have three different pencilers and like, I don't know, four or five different inkers. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how they assign these pages, but it appears to be at complete and utter random. And so it's like deadlines happen and it's a double size issue. But like give one team four pages and then another team four pages. Like this is just you turn the page and it's one artistic team. You turn the page and now it's another and it's just all over the place. Well, yeah, because one of the ways that you can handle that kind of gracefully is to give different teams different sort of thematic moments from the comic to work on. You know, we could have one penciler work on the Cable and Rachel story and one team work on like another aspect of the story or something. I mean, this particular issue doesn't work that well for that because other than the Cable and Rachel thing, it all kind of happens in the same place at the same time. But still, yeah, definitely can be a little bit jarring to read. Well, let's do some other first impressions. I want to do yours, Andrew. I want to let you defend this comic and, <laughs> and give us your take on it so that we can either try to talk you out of it or be persuaded. I am willing to be persuaded. Okay, so um, the first thing I will say is um, perhaps counterintuitively, I, I don't like the plot direction. I don't like the idea of reintegrating Excalibur with the X-Men for a lot of the reasons Austin already spoke to. I, I miss the British element. I miss the isolation and I miss the different tone. I also don't like the connection to fatal attractions. I don't care about that. The artwork, I'm with Anna. I like some of these illustrators. Uh, Robertson and Lashley are very talented with a Joe Mad cover. That's awesome. But again, it's not well integrated. This is clearly a rush job. Um, here's what I like. The thing that I miss the most since Claremont has left this book and Davis by extension as well is the idea of subtlety, nuance, and depth in the individual choices that we're seeing in the writing. So just to list off a few here, I like the splash page. I, I like the pace that it sets. I-, I like the jarring misdirect of Kurt killing someone only to learn that he was under an influence. I like Phoenix as the voice of self-deluding moral absolutism. I love Kitty <laughs> calling Professor X on his condescension and taking herself out of that game. I love mm-hmm. connecting Proteus's trauma, or sorry, the trauma of Proteus to Moira's science drive. That's brilliant. I love the first Ray and Jean page, though I hate the second one. Uh, and I love that Peter is allowed to make some very valid points. And then even like even like microanalysis. I love the line that Kitty gives Peter. It wasn't the dream that failed you. It was the reality because that perfectly encapsulates the conflict. Peter's philosophy was never betrayed. It, 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 in fact, still works. It was the context surrounding it, and he needs to know that. So there's all these little details here in the story that I have been starving for 
the last few issues of Lobdell. Um, so seeing it kind of come to life like this with things that you can ponder and contemplate and talk about, for me, that's the comic coming alive. And that's why I really, really like this issue. I think all of that is fair, Andrew. I mean, compared to the last three issues that we had, it is definitely a huge improvement. Like you would not know that the same person was involved in writing Excalibur number 68 as wrote this comic. It's just a completely different comic. And I definitely yeah. feel that. I mean, again, as I, as I said, this is a comic that feels like it knows what it's doing. It has purpose. I understand why the choices were made here. And it does so much work, like catching us up on what the context of these character relationships are. There is a lot of really deliberate and quite successful work there. I mean, I'm just sort of coming at it from like, I reread all of Fatal Attractions recently because I did a comic book Herald podcast about it. And I think I said on that podcast, it's just like the way the books are written in this era, it's just a little bit of like, you're bludgeoned with the blunt force of the metaphor <laughs> like a lot of the time you know like you're told what it means it's like you know professor x the nature of our relationship is that you used to treat me like a child and now i'm reacting to you as mm -hmm. the stiff patriarchal father figure that i subsequently recognize you as being and it's like okay <laughs> like that is very like purposeful and i yes. get it but i was very exhausted by the end of this issue <laughs> anyway Mav, i'll let you do your first impressions we'll come back to it exhausted is a perfect way of saying it i didn't think that is that is absolutely the right the right adjective the last three episodes of our show i've been I've been questioning whether we were reading comics or not. And I think I said on, on, on that I, I was like, you know, um, Scott McCloud has the definition of a comic where he's like, it's, it's a series of juxtaposed images. And I was like, well, those are certainly here. So I guess this qualifies. I don't feel that way about this issue. This is a lot of comic, a lot of stuff happens it here. It, it's really a lot. And there it's are... worth four bucks. That's my yeah. that's my. I was, was going to say to try to give you your four dollars. Yeah. Four dollar four dollar cover price. A creative team of twelve people: one writer, three pencilers, four inkers, one colorist, and three letters plus two editors. Right. So, like everyone worked here. Everyone got to contribute something to the story i think and it doesn't all mix together but there are there's so much going on and i and i felt when reading this like oh okay there's a lot to keep track of this could be interesting like what's going on with kurt and scott it's interesting i actually like the grown-up stories in this book that Kitty gets to engage in with both the professor and with Colossus. I th I think that you know, this is credit to Scott Lobdell. I think that plot wise, his writing of both of all three of those characters was spot on for what I want them to be in this era. His scripting is awful in it. I don't like the actual conversations. I think it's clunky for exactly the reasons Anna was just saying. And I felt similarly when kitty's talking to peter but like i like that he he essentially recognizes that i mean i guess she's 18 she explicitly says she's not a minor here which you i know, thought that britain was super are, weird yeah britain laws are yeah. well britain laws are different so she could be 16 given how schooling works there but it doesn't matter like i'm okay with him saying and because this is integrating x caliber back into the x-men line i am okay with the decision that we are now going to treat kitty as an adult because we're not there anymore and in fact it's necessary because she had been written as the same age as the new mutants and those characters in x-force are now adults they are 
unequivocally adults in X-Force right now. So she has to be. So I'm okay with that. I, I'm okay with what's going on. And I love the story of her going to Professor X and saying, I am not a child. This is not, you know, I didn't like how you treated me then. And I'm an adult now. And if you're going to ask me for a favor, you are going to treat me as such. And I, I like that. I don't like how he wrote it, like, with her no nuance with her just saying that to him. It came across as clunky and weird. I love that her and Peter get to acknowledge the ridiculously complicated relationship they have. Like where mm -hmm. she's like, you know, we broke up years ago for me, but I, I can't just betray him. I still love him and, he, and he's special. Like those things work for me. Similarly, <laughs> I love that Rachel and Cable have their moment. It's clunky and weird, but okay, that's something. I feel exactly the same way as Andrew on the Gene and, on the Gene and Rachel moment um i love the first page hate the second page now with all that said i just said a whole bunch of stuff none of which really has anything to do with each other some of which gets resolved some of which never does to to this day like it it's cumbersome and it's just breakneck pace and it feels like um it feels like there was an editorial mandate to bring these characters back into the back into the product line and you have exactly one page one issue to do it in you know, we'll give you a double-sized issue, but you've got to be done with this in 37 pages. You know, that's that's how it feels because that's what happened. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah, that's literally exactly what and it feels like it. And as a reader, you can tell like it's not good because there is so much. It is so cumbersome. Like the reason there are seven different artists on this book is because. It was such a quick, it's like, look, we've got to do this in 37 pages this month. I feel like the decision was made a week before press time and everybody was just doing their best. That's how it feels. And this and was also a period where everything was getting delayed. They had tons of right, right. publishing issue, production issues with Marvel and these yeah. fatal attractions things. Mm -hmm. And they were just churning out so much content. So it could very well have been that they just put all this together a week before it went yeah. to press. And it, it really feels like it. And that's. I've got like specific details that I'll say later, but here I'll say one we're not going to talk in depth about. Like Micromex is like who just joined the team. He's like, oh well, you yeah. know, we might lose him, and I'm like, because editorial just doesn't care is how it, how it feels, and I'm fine with that because I don't care either, right? But like, it's like you're telling the reader, don't worry about this character; he is irrelevant. Like they they basically dispense with Brian, Widget, Cerise, Megan, Farron, Kylan, and Micromax in half a page, like halfway through the book. Hey, remember all these main characters of the book? They don't matter anymore because this is an X-Men book. And stuff like that feels off because even if you're going to change direction, make me feel like you earn it. Like when you when the Avengers revamp their team, which they do so often, you know, we get a whole issue where which is about revamping the team, not about just, you know, bringing this in line. So that's it. There were like cumbersome things like that. But it felt like it felt chaotic, just as chaotic as all the artwork changing. The writing felt chaotic like that. And one person wrote it all. So that's odd. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm gonna be sympathetic to Lobdell here that I do think he's got a huge task in yeah. this issue, and he pulls it off better than I could, you know, probably. Yeah. I don't know. Like, he's got to do a lot here, and like, he's under a lot of pressure, and he had a clear editorial mandate of what he had to accomplish here. And I am viewing the writing generously within that context. And he pulls it off. I mean, he for what he was asked to do, like. Mm -hmm. uh, 
because it because it clearly and andrew you said you don't like that they're be not going to be their own thing anymore but the answer was basically sorry them's the breaks because this is how it's going to be and frankly as much as i loved this book for what it was under davis i realized at that time back in 93 i realized what was going on even without the internet even without insight knowledge because it showed in the work and also because it was very evident that no one else was reading this book. Like I had no friends who were reading this book at that time. Like it was yeah, just yeah. like it it, 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 it run its course. So if Excalibur is going to exist, it has to exist as part of the X line at this point. Mm -hmm, it just, mm -hmm. it, it, it was not viable. It was not a financially, like it would, it would be fiduciarily irresponsible <laughs> to, to continue to post the, to continue to publish the book in the way in which it was happening as much as I loved it. Like I really wanted to see, you know, Davis just go on forever, but no one cared about Warpies except for, you know, the people who are listening to this show right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like literally hi gang, we're it. Right. Like, so, yeah. and that's not enough. That's not enough to publish this book. That's why they've not shown up again. Right. Like, cause it's mm -hmm. not like it's, people there's people clamoring for it and so i get why you're like yeah but you know we can do stuff with magneto we can do stuff with the x-men you know they've got a cartoon they've got you know movies coming someday soon like the, I, I get why these decisions were made they could have given him more than one issue to do it in and for all the crap we did labdell given what he had to do in 37 pages or 36 pages, whatever it is, right? You know, bravo to you for pulling it off as well as you did. Because it's because there's a lot of like, we need to sow the seeds of, this is what Rachel's relationship with Gene is going to be, because it's going to matter in a couple of yeah, issues. Yeah. Um, and then we also need to deal with Cable. Because by the way, Cable is not officially a Summers yet. So this is telling, and but it's very obvious that he's connected. If you read this, if you yeah. don't know, this is telling you, hey kids, important stuff can happen in Excalibur now. So It's hilarious. Mm -hmm. The month after this issue is when the Cable the story starts in Cable's solo series that ends with the confirmation that he is a Summers. Like right. it's this got out just in front of when that was still a mystery and and that's clearly uh, an open secret but not official yet. And that's clearly intentional, right? That's clearly done oh, yeah. to make yeah. to make you realize the important stuff is happening in every book, right? Like that's like yep. a, that's oh, yeah. like a, you yeah. can't ignore Excalibur anymore because you might miss the very important confirmation that you know Cable is part of the Summers plan. That matters. I also right? have a th I, I have a theory about Cable's appearance here that we can get to when we get to that oh. section. Okay, I want I want to say like one more word just in support of Andrew's uh, <laughs> Andrew's defense of the comic though too. Like I I totally get what you're saying, Andrew, in terms of this book does honor sort of that history of character relationships. You know, even though it's a hard break from some of the Davis stuff, which you know <laughs> the Band-Aid was pulled off a few issues ago for us, so that's not a shock at this point anymore. But still, like I mean, what we're saying in terms of <laughs> sometimes hitting us over the head with the, the blunt force of those those character relationships it is still honoring that like long history of relationships and i i totally get how that would feel refreshing especially for you as someone who studied all of those relationships so in depth yeah and coming i mean for me as a even as a kid coming to it that like the history that they're referencing that's what i knew you know the alan yeah, davis stuff yeah. that they were saying goodbye to flew over my head but it's like oh yeah right. kitty colossus i mean i i probably just read that issue where they broke up after secret wars and x-men classic or something like that so mm -hmm. that was you know that's that's what they're tapping into is that history and that that works far better than you know the new direction and all that kind of stuff that that set up yeah and i think for me that's kind of the heart of the issue obviously is the the, the kitty peter scene which isn't just trading on that history which is something we've you know accused Lovedell 
style of doing of sort of bandwagon jumping on things and making them worse than they were when he jumped on Mm -hmm. Um, this is an important (laughs) kitty peter moment right it's one that's Mm -hmm. been printed a lot it's one that's kind of iconic frankly a lot of people reference it constantly i don't know i I think i think that scene really works and i I think he draws out the emotions effectively and i think he advances that relationship in the process which again to me is good writing okay well let's let's talk about that scene a little bit more specifically but i did just want to say a couple of words about do we want to talk about the larger context of the fatal attractions event at all it's not super relevant to the story here because we're just kind of wrapping up some of the loose ends in this issue but if we if we want to do a recap of it i can give it to you austin <laughs> that's the person who's been recapping this issue recently so yeah I, I mean i could do it relatively quickly uh fatal attractions was a celebration of the 30th anniversary of the x-men it brought back magneto he died in the last issue of claremont's x-men run uh x-men volume Beautiful. two number three had been gone <laughs> Since then, and then the big 30th anniversary celebration was, ah, we're going to bring back Magneto. (laughs) Uh, It's a weird crossover because each issue until like the third and fourth chapters, three, four, five kind of flow together. But there's an X Factor issue that kicks it off that is largely disconnected from what follows. It's more of a thematic connection than anything. Then there's an X-Force issue that kind of ties in here because cables after the acolytes because magneto kind of messed him up in that issue that is kind of off doing its own thing then uncanny 304 is the funeral of iliana rasputin who died of the legacy virus in the previous issue that's the big we knew magneto was back prior to that because he shows up in x-force but that's his big <laughs> unveiling to everybody yeah. all of the x-men he crashes iliana's funeral um he's written wildly out of character in my opinion <laughs> and then that's when colossus says screw you to a Xavier and joins Magneto and his acolytes. Yeah. And then that leads into X-Men 25, X-Men Volume 225, which is uh, Magneto kicks it off by releasing an electromagnetic pulse across the planet. That gets referenced in this issue. That's what caused these prisoners that I guess were at Muir Island. We've never heard of that before, but I guess they have prisoners and they all escaped uh, because <laughs> of that. In response to that, Professor X leads a strike team to Magneto's space station uh, to take out Magneto once and for all. Magneto responds by forcibly removing the the adamantium from Wolverine's skeleton. Xavier responds to that by wiping Magneto's mind and reducing him to a vegetable. Basically, it is both a ridiculous and fantastic issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it is just high Sturm and Drang, just it's everything you want from 90s comics. I, I love it. Wolverine 75 is the aftermath of that as a grievously wounded Wolverine who has had the metal stripped from his bones <laughs> is raced back down to the mansion. They try to keep their plane from falling apart. Again, it's a weird crossover issue because it's very self-contained. It's just this like survival story of will the X-Men get from the space station back to the mansion will wolverine survive and then towards the end of that issue we get the big reveal that wolverine has bone claws that uh his claws were not adamant pure adamantium they were coated on his bones that are also claws and then we get this issue and the funny thing about this issue is that its main plot point tie comes from uncanny x-men annual 17 which is when colossus gets injured in the head by the executioner and uh we, we all read that right remember hey, yeah kids, sure remember I read it. hey of course you read it it came packaged with a trading card how could yeah. you not have have 
pick that up. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of this weird, like, this is the final chapter of Fatal Attractions, and it kind of nods at some of those previous events. Uh, I mean, obviously, Colossus having joined the Acolytes and all of that, but the, the thrust of it is like, oh, he's, he's been brain damaged. We'll fix his brain injury, and then <laughs> he'll come to his senses. And that brain injury has nothing to do with Fatal Attractions. That's from a whole other thing a few months before. <laughs> Yeah, that's also a pretty good summary. Because, you know, I like I said, I read it recently, and I really could not have told you everything that happens, but it all came back to me in that excellent summary. I remember all of these iconic moments now. Um, yeah, it's, it's a yeah. crossover where the it is the sum of its iconic moments. <laughs> like, yeah. It, ha- yeah. it has a lot of those, and they're memorable, and that everything else around it is pretty meh. I was gonna say, and super importantly, though, you know, just holograms everywhere. It is a very yes. Every every issue has a hologram on its cover. <laughs> I remember the adamantium thing, and I remember Ileana's funeral because it okay. It, just, it, it comes up in this issue too because there's like a confusion between um, nihilism and atheism that happens in both instances. I'm like, yes. atheist doesn't mean you believe in nothing. It just means you don't <laughs> believe in God. But like, that's fine because she has a very Christian funeral, and like. Colossus mm-hmm. is both an atheist and she was a demon, so whatever. But <laughs> so I really remember I, I feeling actually, like that was weird. I actually did want to talk about that a little bit. That um oh no, okay. I, well, no, I, because it's, it is it is because it's weird, right? I don't think it's mm-hmm. confusion. I don't think he's thinking nihilism. I think he's thinking atheism. But this is a different time. This is a very Judeo-Christian and mostly Christian time in America where the idea of and this is not a British book, right? It's not at this point. The idea of being an atheist is synonymous in like in the names of many people in this country still, but definitely at this point, the idea of being an atheist is synonymous with believing in nothing. It, I don't think it's an accident. I think it is a short-sighted writing that was on par. Like I understand why Lubdell wrote it that way because it was on par with the going belief system of what atheists were. So I I'd, I'd say he's being progressive or trying to be progressive. He's being progressive for 1993 by acknowledging that Peter was an atheist and he's trying to say, "Look, I had convictions and beliefs of being a good person without believing in in any of your god nonsense." which popular culture certainly in comics um but definitely in America popular culture attributed that to you must be a christian in order to do that to to have that at this point so i think labdell was trying to do something super interesting and important there it's not the greatest play because no because nowhere go he doesn't go anywhere with it and you know i don't know how much he could have done with standards and practices and also, I don't know that he's got the nuance to do anything super great with it. And also, it's been 30 years, right? Like, we just, we're just in a different place now in comics and in life to where it just doesn't play as well. But I did find it interesting that he was trying. I thought it was a, I thought it was a cool swing to attempt even back then. I think it just reads really funny as someone from a country that is a little less Christian. And yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like he's betraying this person from another country that, you know, again, in this context, because he's from, you know, Soviet era, 
something yeah. <laughs> you know whatever which gets weird because of sliding time scales but anyway um mm -hmm. state-sponsored atheism is like sort of the context we're talking about here and like making it seem like other countries and their entire belief systems and political systems are godless and alien and i'm just yeah. like i just we're not that different we just like a lot of us don't believe in god <laughs> And a lot of and a lot of Americans didn't. I don't, right? But that yeah. was a but but, uh, but it was in a way refreshing to see it acknowledged at that at that point, like when it when it happened, because it's what they're really going for is yes, Colossus is a godless heathen, but he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> like like that's the story that they're going for, and you know, offensive, but also. Okay, I, I like that. I, li I like that you're doing a thing, and I just want to give you know I want to give Labdell credit when I feel like he deserves it, and I and here I actually feel like he he deserves. It's a it's a bigger swing than I think it seems like in 2022. I think it's like just I, one of those things where it's like yeah. once you bring up religion in this space, like until you bring it up and make a big deal of it, and I'm like, oh, I see. Being an atheist in this world means you're like super weird and isolated and the only one i was like i would have preferred not knowing that actually because like, yeah. it changes the nature of the world I, I think there's another piece to it though because he's using it to set up this idea of colossus seeing xavier being held up as a false idol which i think is again mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. valid criticism of xavier so yeah. like i don't know <laughs> more so than maybe that's <laughs> just a way for lobtail to access that i think it's the best he can do i mean again in 1993 I don't think you could have gone any further in a mainstream X book. Like the idea of yeah. like, like honestly, the idea of acknowledging, because again, yeah, I get that he's a Russian character. I get they're in Britain, but they're American characters for all intents and purposes. That's like, that's their prime audiences. You got to be able to sell this in the States. And I think that by acknowledging, okay, I live in a country where Donald Trump pretended he was devout in order to become president. <laughs> and no one like no one thinks that. Right. But like people are like, oh, OK, he's holding a Bible. Yeah. Good for him. Because like that's what because that matters. And that's 30 years later. Right. So I think that at yeah. this time period, I think the swing of saying, I mean, yes, even though he's a godless heathen, he's got a valid point is I think what they're going for. And I think that's actually good writing. I say hesitantly, like I, I I'm winning over math. Yeah, it's it's an I think it's a choice. I think it's a good choice to do something interesting with this book in a way that, you know, I don't think it's safe. I think it's weird because it's just it's anachronistic, but I don't think yeah. it's any weirder than the fact that like, you know, from than the fact that he's from the USSR at all. I mean that's right? yeah, I mean that's what gives Lobdell the cover to do it. Right. Right. Yeah. He's he's he was raised Soviet, so it's like, oh, okay, he's a godless mm -hmm. heathen because he didn't know any better. Right. And now, you know, now we can grapple with what that means. You know, if it had been any other character that he just, you know, mentioned in that context, then I think he would have gotten a lot more grief for it. Mm -hmm. And he's the bad so, guy in this comic too, right? That's the even further. Yeah. Lesson. Yeah. Ostensibly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It made me feel worse as an atheist than I would have felt like if they hadn't brought it up. Because <laughs> yeah. I just was like, oh, I didn't realize that my point of view was persecuted. I felt fine before. But thanks. <laughs> thanks for letting oh, me know. Um, that's actually so you say you said that. I mean, I know Canada is less heavy, heavily handed Christian than uh, United States. But you said you didn't know that your um, 
belief system was persecuted. But see, I think in America, you absolutely would know, particularly in the 90s. Oh, you'd yeah. Be like, like, I, yeah. I, like I, I think that you would have been like, oh, like, I, I, I seriously think you'd be like, you would have, there's a, there's a bit of, oh my God, I see myself in a comic here, even if I am the bad guy. Like, at least, you know, at least they're acknowledging it, I think would have been the feeling. Yeah. I don't know a lot about the demographics of that kind of stuff, but like, yeah, definitely it was the kind of thing where I was like, I didn't realize being an atheist was so edgy. I thought it was just normal. <laughs> this comic yeah. made me feel like it wasn't normal. Yeah, but one, um, one anyway. last one yeah, last fun uh, Fatal Attractions tie-in that I'll mention just because it's relevant to your audience is that uh, in X Men twenty five when Magneto does the whole EMP thing, they do that classic crossover. We're going to show how this affects a bunch of other characters from other books in in a little montage thing, like in uh, Dark Phoenix Saga, and there is a a panel that shows. Nightcrawler and Captain Britain reacting to the, I think it's like the power going out in Braddock yeah. Manor or something like that. And there is no way to reconcile Captain Britain's appearance in that issue. Yeah, in yeah. His personal timeline that he disappears in the same issue that Kitty leaves for Iliana's funeral and then he's gone in Excalibur 71. And how is that? And the Marvel Chronology Project just ignores it. Yeah, I know the exact panel. Yeah, you know that if they throw up their hands and just pretend he's not there, then it's mm-hmm. it's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about some other things with the Kitty Colossus thing before we move off that. Totally, like we already mentioned that it seems like we're aging Kitty up in this issue and I definitely got that impression as well which makes sense with some of the things that are going to happen not too long from now once Warren Ellis comes on the book we won't talk about that right now but still like I don't know I had mixed feelings about it because in some ways she does act very childish here and in some ways she acts more adult in some ways I feel like they're trying to sell me on the genuineness of the Kitty Colossus relationship in ways that make me uncomfortable and think about the reason that a lot of people do feel comfortable about that relationship which is that you know we've talked about that relationship on the pod before Andrew's done some great threads about it on Claremont Run you know the idea that in the context of it in the Claremont era the crush makes sense from Kitty's perspective him responding to it is what makes it weird but at the same time it is a very (laughs) complex and realistic situation I would say where I come at the relationship is the romanticization of that relationship after the fact which is definitely something that I see going on in an issue like this is where I start to start to kind of hesitate on that relationship because I just, well, I don't know. I mean, we already brought personal experience into it, but it's just that like, I've been in some situations like that, not that exact situation, but like in terms of like age different (laughs) stuff and crushes and that kind of stuff. And I've certainly known other girls who were in situations like that. It is not my experience that if you'd been in a situation like that, several years later, you perceive the guy as the love of your life and that being a super positive experience. So it doesn't resonate for me. Um, I'm sure someone else has a different experience, but um. It bothered me a little bit here, romanticizing it to the degree, to the degree that they did. did. Like, did it did it bother anybody else, or was it sort of like, did it make sense? I of course come at it from a continuity perspective because that's, that's fine. That's how I how I that's the lens through which, first and foremost, at least, that's the lens through which I view a lot of this stuff. And yeah, you know, at the time, it I don't think I thought anything of it, particularly because their original relationship was so fresh in my mind. But looking back on it, I could certainly be wrong, and I am open to be corrected on this. But I really think this is the first time that that romanticization of their relationship 
starts to happen. Yeah. Like prior to this, you know, they had their relationship. They ended it. Jim Shooter put the kibosh on it. Uh, we had the great Colossus fights the Juggernaut in a bar issue. Yeah. And they were close and had a bond and that got referenced and you know when kitty thought that he died in fall of the mutants she was understandably sad and it was kind of a first love sort of a thing but it wasn't like the love of my life has died the the man i was going to marry when she talks about how she in this issue how she fantasized about whether she would be you know mrs rasputin or whatever none of that i don't think was ever present until this issue sort of wrote it into their relationship yeah yeah that's that's essentially what i'm getting at in terms of some of my discomfort but i'm sure andrew or Matt, you have thoughts about it too it wasn't present but i also think that it wasn't present context it wasn't present because it couldn't have been not because not because it wouldn't have been but because it literally couldn't have been Right. This is the first time I think you're right, because this is the first time that Kitty and Peter have actually shared um, shared any real real time, any real any real panel space with, with each other since the beginning of the direct sales era. It couldn't have been a thing before before now because it literally just can't be right. Like you cannot right. have you cannot have a world where um, where Kitty and Peter have anything even remotely approaching a fantastic sexual relationship in her head even right like which it absolutely probably should have been which is what anna was getting at right like you it should be you should be able to tell the story where it's different to have her fantasizing about him than it is for her for him to be responding to it but in the claremont era that doesn't really happen in their relationship because it was actually relatively chaste right like it was you know she liked him and he resisted but like you were never going to have a picture you know a comic where they have sex that was never going to happen at least not explicitly right so i get that right i i feel like this feels more grown up because it's just the first opportunity their relationships ever had to be anything approaching grown up that said i mean i don't know like i <laughs> I, I am always um i wouldn't say i'm an apologist for the, for the relationship i'm more okay with it than i think other people are because i think that not that it's necessarily the best thing there's, there's certainly power dynamic issues there but i think that those par- those power dynamic issues are realistic and common so therefore i find their story interesting and i do know people who have relationships where you know they married their crush who was 10 15 years older i mean peter's really only probably like five years older than she is it's not that much it's enough to to where you're uncomfortable with it when she's 13 and he's 18 as as rightly so but but if she's grown up here she's 18 and he's 23 and they haven't dated in you know four years so it's not as weird to me it's just as weird for me as i and again my i have relatives who've done this but i think it's weird to marry your high school crush at all right like like it just that's an odd thing to me but also i just didn't do it right so i i don't want to be judgy about it so i have complicated feelings i like it because it's it's handled with absolute delicacy here like this is some of labdell's best writing of a relationship as far as i'm concerned because like i see i see that he's got a valid point i see that she's got one and i like that they kiss each other goodbye as a look okay we've grown apart but i will always love you even if that wasn't there like i i like that he's doing a mature relationship so i like it i guess (sighs) I don't know. I just I'm looking at the page now where she's like describing mm-hmm. him as like 
oh, like, you know, betrayed by his love, like the love of his life. And I'm the like, dialogue's she, was, awful. she was 13, yeah. bro. Like, mm-hmm. that's not appropriate. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but like, we're not talking about <laughs> this deep, like, love relationship that you had. She was 13, bro. Like, it's just like, I don't know. Like, what are you expecting us to believe the nature of that relationship was back then? And that's where I think it's hanging me up a little bit. I think he's expecting us to retcon it, right? I think he's trying to pay attention to the continuity, the history, and he's trying to create a world that respects the fact that they were a couple, but like trying to do it in the more adult way that X-Men comics exist in the, you know, in the modern age of comics, right? Like they they had a Bronze Age relationship that is being, that was it developed, or they had a relationship developed in the Bronze Age and now it's being referenced in the modern age of comics, um, mostly in direct sales market. It's weird because of their age disparity. I get that, but I don't think, but he didn't decide on that. And I think that that's just how he's got to play it if he wants to do something interesting with the characters. One could argue that maybe he shouldn't be, but like, I don't know if that's his decision or editorial mandate, right? Because like clearly Peter and Kitty is just a thing that we will be dealing with forever. It's been 30 years since then and we're still doing it in comics, right? Like they're broken up currently, but they still have some sort of relationship in comics today. And it's just got to be a thing that we've just got to do, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can buy it a little bit more in modern comics to the extent that it kind of feels like, oh, well, maybe we're doing a new relationship with the characters with at a less problematic age, you know, in something like, you know, like it or hate it, like Whedon's X-Men, you know, where they're of some more similar age and we're kind of like doing a new relationship and in some ways the mm-hmm. first relationship that they really had. And I can buy that a little bit more. I still is off for me on a personal level, but still it's just that here when it's just like being like, we were the love of each other's lives. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, but that just didn't happen. She was like, I mean, I don't want to like age shame anybody. People are at different levels of maturity at different ages. This is a complicated conversation, but 13 is young. It is very, very young for me to like believe that that was the nature of the relationship that for this scene to be building on. Just the way that that relationship plays in those old issues. She's she's a kid. Like she's really a kid. And it's a youthful infatuation that is problematic. And that's the point. And just seeing that problematicness wiped away in the romanticization of it here. I, I just, I'm not going to be sold on that. It is what it is. Oh yeah, yeah. And but but I don't know how you, I don't know how you fix it other than just like being done with it. Which, well, which is what some some writers have tried to do now, and then other writers just bring it back because like it's the one, it's the relationship that they grew up on. So I, I like I don't know that we'll ever get away from it. Is what I'm what I'm saying. I appreciate when someone tries to do it sensitively. Which again, he, it's still Scott Lobdell, but I but I really think he's trying to be sensitive to the nature of their relationship. Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on it, Andrew. Before we talk about a couple other things, I, I kind of like it. And I'm very close to Mav's reading of it. The The aspect that I would point out is that I think relationships aren't just, you know, romantic or sexual or filial or platonic. They're, they're all those things at the same time. And I, I think he's trying to acknowledge that multiplicity here. The idea being that Kitty fully understands this was not a romantic relationship that could ever have worked, right? She even says, um, um, I dreamed of being the past. Or I, I dreamed of being the future Mrs. Rasputin. She doesn't think that way anymore, but there's still this sort of bond of emotions between them. There's a, a beautiful friendship that actually got developed after Colossus got his ass kicked by the juggernaut um, that I think is really what Lovedell is trying to trade on. And, and if he's not disambiguating those things, and I think that's what, what Anna's picking up on, that is his fault as a writer, right? He, he does need to mm-hmm. make that a little bit more clear. But for me, I can kind of see where he's trying to go and I don't have a problem with it because I, I think the idea that they would both have 
this lingering um, um, bond of trust in particular, because that's what's being betrayed here. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think it doesn't make any sense to me to have like a line like his love, which does make it a very singular relationship. I mean, does he love mm-hmm. Kurt the same way he loves Kitty? Or does no. he love Kitty a different way than he loves Kurt? So like if she's his love, that's a monogamous romantic relationship. I mm-hmm. don't think it is. And I, I don't think the context of their relationship, again, after the juggernaut thing, uh, um, wouldn't allow for that. No, I agree in terms of like the former stories. I think for me, it's reading like that complicatedness is being wiped away in terms of the way it's written here. But that's a very subjective thing because I think you're just reading it differently mm. than me. Like You're giving it yeah, more credit I, than I am, I think. I'm definitely being more reparative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is fair, which is fair. We read these things differently. Plus, like, I'm like, I can't help it. I'm bringing like, you know, fandom context to this. I'm bringing like a future context, like to this. And like, in terms of how some people, some people view this relationship and I can't help it. Mm-hmm. I'm prejudiced against this relationship. I'm going to bring that context to it. And but yeah, that's no, reading comics, reading. right? Like it's got to be not just, not even just you being like, you're a professional literature nerd, right? So like, obviously you're going to do that. But I think that even for just your average reader, in 1993 that context is there the context is is going to be there these characters have had some sort of relationship for 20 something years now of which nobody has read all of them right like you're so you've got like your own personal reading of the kitty colossus relationship and then for your regular average comic reader who's read these stories for the 20 something years since the 28 years since same thing, right? You're going to have a complicated feeling of it. And so I think that that I think that the comic has to deal with that. And you can't just pretend that people aren't going to have the dude, she was 13, ew, reaction because dude, she was 13, ew, is, is like what the truth of it is, right? Before we move off of this, because I want to talk about the Rachel stuff and I want to talk about the Kurt stuff before we run out of time. But um, so the panel, like the splash page where like Kitty is holding Colossus, is it supposed to be a deliberate callback to, you know, kitty holding iliana yeah like her like i remember you know everything yeah i i i don't think it's iliana specifically so much as it i mean yes i know i know the one you're talking about i think they're both kind of trading on the idea of a pieta in the same way that the very famous scott holding gene's body and the very famous uh, Superman Supergirl, holding yeah. Supergirl's body. People like look at them as, oh, one swipe the other one. But no, no, they're both just doing a play on uh, on the Pieta, as is um, very directly the Death in the Family cover. It's it's like a thing that happens in comic imagery because it is the you know because that is such a famous sculpture and such a famous image in Renaissance art. We sort of we sort of read this pose as the most nurturing that two people who love each other can be and i love each other obviously that 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 is a mother and son right so not in a sexual way but it is the most loving and nurturing that you can do and that's why we read that that image that way so i think it's trading on the same idea and so a callback in that sense more than a direct callback to that image I guess just because of the direct con- the direct connection to Ileana and Kitty and Ileana and the fact that this is about Ileana, it just obviously put that very, very central in my mind. And I, to be fair, I will say that this scene, like the splash page, it speaks to Andrew's read of it because that is like the complicatedness of the love. Like she's holding him in a motherly way and they're talking about, you know, their shared love for, you know, <laughs> the friend or girlfriend or whoever we read Ileana that has been lost. So there are a lot of complicated affections going on in that image that aren't necessarily reducible to 
romantic love between Kitty and Kitty and Peter. So I, I take your point there. Um, okay, let's talk about Rachel, and then let's talk about some of the Kurt character stuff in this because those are the two points I really wanted to hit because this is like a mega sized issue. And as we keep saying, there was so much that happened in this issue. But um, so everybody said that they liked the first page of like Jean and Rachel. So maybe let's talk about that. What makes that first page good? And I'll give you first crack at it, Austin. How did you feel about the Jean and Rachel scene in this comic? I've never liked Jean's reaction to Rachel, her existence, her 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 being around. And so the moving past that and the reconciling of that is much more to my taste, I guess. Like, why do you think it's here? Like, I mean, it's part of like the overall project of this comic, right? To sort of establish these characters have relationships and these things are going to sort of intersect. Like, I mean, is there anything more that you'd want to add on that point? Like, in what ways are we establishing these characters are connected? Well, I can I can get real granular and kind of nerdy here uh, in terms of I can't decide if Lovedell doesn't know how Marvel time works or is ignoring it because he wants to make this character beat as far as when Rachel gets excited that Scott and Jean are going to get married because then she she thinks that she's that much closer to being born because <laughs> in her reality, she was the child of a married Scott and Jean. But that's not how Marvel time works. And Rachel knows that from many issues of Excalibur. <laughs> she has learned that. From and so two it's issues this... ago. She knows it from two issues ago. Okay? Right. Exactly. <laughs> she, like, it's literally a book that Lobdell wrote. It's referenced. In. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you know, spoiler alert, a lot of this, I think, is Lobdell setting up her short departure it's a long departure but it happens shortly in the book and trying to sort of move her into a place as a character where she gets some resolution and satisfaction before he writes her out of the book and in the context of just this issue in and of itself yeah it's 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 the tightening these ties that bind it's you know rachel is gene's daughter now they're getting along gene is more open to her and hey guess what kiddo i'm gonna marry your alt dad soon and that makes you happy and so uh, that's that's certainly in keeping with the spirit of the issue but i feel like lobdell is either willfully or not ignoring the reality of rachel's circumstances in order to make that point and i don't like that about it Okay, I'm gonna like reveal myself as a godly, godless heathen for the second time because I totally misread this scene. And as you're talking about it, I totally get it now that they're talking about the marriage. But I'm like looking at the dialogue and it's like, that would never happen unless I thought this scene was weird because I thought that Jean was telling Rachel that she and Scott were like trying to have a kid like actively mm-hmm. so the conversation was that. like hey we're doing it i'm ovulating right now rachel isn't that awesome and i was like "Ooh, that's an uncomfortable conversation to have with your like alternate mom and i was like oh they're just saying that obviously they couldn't have a kid if they weren't married because they wouldn't be having sex if they weren't married and i went completely that, over my head <laughs> well and that that's i mean that is the alternate reading of it which also doesn't work because i don't think there's ever been anything in Jean's characterization that says like you know she's a a ride or die marriage gal or anything like that that no she famously um, has she famously has sex with scott on the beach like in a i mean it is a very yeah but then the dialogue says here how is that possible you and scott have have to have a kid and that would never happen unless you're getting married and i'm like oh what (laughs) yeah this is this is why i hate that second page because i think (laughs) because because no austin 
your reading is 100% what Lavdell is going for there. Like, I, there's no doubt in my mind that that's what he's he's pushing for this, like, we're getting married. That said, that's not what he got. That's not what he wrote. He wrote this scene poorly. And, right. <laughs> um, and Anna's reading is what the book says. <laughs> and, and like, it, it really is written as though, oh, you are either pregnant or you, because they're, you know, their their conversation is interrupted. So she was either about to tell her, oh, I'm pregnant, which she's not, or, which is what I thought when I read this at the um the first time. I was like, oh, is she going to announce that she's pregnant? But no, spoiler, she doesn't, right? Or it's going for the, hey, we're going to try to start a family. That's what they're going for. And... <laughs> I mean, that's not not what they're they're going for. That's what that's what they wrote, even if that's not what they were going for. And that's how I read it in 1993. And I was like, oh, that's a choice. (laughs) But 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 like it's it's clearly not what he's intending for. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like the thing that you're saying is the only thing that makes sense, because I've thought about this a lot over the years. And like this is just badly done because it doesn't read the way that I think he intends it to. Right. (laughs) Right. It's broken. Either interpretation is broken. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like at the bottom of the page. Like, I mean, I don't want to be weird about it, but it's just like Rachel's like, go get him, mom. And I'm just like, (laughs) you're just like, go hop on that dick, mom. Let's get this done. And I'm like, what are we doing here? This is kind of, I don't want to police people's conversation, but this is a weird conversation. Like, you know, if if, if I I have friends, if they tell me we're going to have a baby, I'm like, oh, good for you. Happy for you. But I'm not like, ooh, are you going to get pregnant soon? Is is this going to be Go get him. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a thing that I do, right? Get her done. So I have a bigger piece of continuity to, to just to drag into. Go for I'm, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a slightly different from Austin. I actually like that Jean rejects Rachel uh, throughout a lot of the Claremont era as just an assertion of her bodily agency, her reproductive yeah, right, yeah. Uh, and not falling into that forced nurturer role, that sort of domesticity. I like Jean as a symbol of someone who pushes against that. But in that first page, you have her very maturely, at least offering the potential to address the ways that that hurts Rachel and how she hasn't taken any responsibility for that. And then the next page is just, I'm going to be a mommy and you can be my baby, hurrah. So we, we've landed <laughs> right back into that sort of right, domestic right. setting. So mm-hmm. yeah, for, for, for me, that piece of it just made it worse. I also really love, just from the art uh, perspective, the panel of Rachel sitting on the rock using her telekinesis to keep yeah. the rain from falling. Yeah. Or just the way that, mm-hmm. that Derek Robertson draws that is just really nice <laughs> in, 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 a, in a book that has a lot of uh, artistic noise it is a quieter more subtle little touch that I enjoyed well as we, we mentioned this briefly on the pod I think when we were talking to Maxime but uh, Robertson apparently was offered the penciling duties on the Ellis run of the comic and uh, turned it down at the time I never hmm. knew that so we That's could have had shame. him doing this yeah. book. He's apparently a huge Nightcrawler fan, and he's had a chance, obviously, wow. to draw him many times since then. So that is a little bit of a shame. I think he would have been a good fit for the book. Well, I mean, I hesitate to even bring this up because we've already obviously done plenty of griping about how this is a hard break from what Davis was doing. But I mean, obviously, this thing with Rachel and Jean, you know, the second page that we keep complaining about, it undercuts a lot of what we finished the Days of Future past reality story and the Davis run too, where, you know, Mm. she'd put that to rest and she'd found her peace there and she's going to make this hopeful future with her new family. And so obviously a lot of backtracking happening there in terms of her Mm. still hoping she's going to be born in this reality that is 
a direct mm -hmm. contravention of what she'd said in Excalibur 67. But again, <laughs> almost no point in saying that because, of course, this book is ignoring no, no, so many of the no things in that, that run. So, yeah. <laughs> but just thought I'd point it out for our loyal listeners who I know some of them are going to are gonna be annoyed by that. But, um, okay, I did want to talk just like about Kurt's betrayal in this issue just briefly, and then we'll do some final thoughts. I, I know we didn't talk about Rachel and Cable, but if someone wants to do it for the final thought, they could. But um, I don't know. I don't even have anything that interesting to say about Kurt in this issue he just does some things but we're clearly sort of setting him up to be kind of he's already was set up to be the leader of Excalibur where we're clearly it's sort of continuing that status quo I was just curious honestly if anybody else had anything interesting to say about it because I don't really have much but like I'll come to you with it Austin you know we're setting up a lot of characters for who they're going to be in the future in this one comic we're doing a lot of legwork there I mean who is Nightcrawler being set up to be here I mean other than the leader not much and I think yeah. he is probably mm. the most underserved in this story i mean obviously kitty gets the big arc with colossus rachel's often her subplot with cable uh and then nightcrawler is just kind of hanging around his his job is is the most related to setting up the new status quo both the sort of like taking in what excalibur is doing in this issue on sort of a macro level and then being like huh i think we should stick around here and keep doing more things like this <laughs> And that's pretty much all he has to do with this issue is yeah. be the the vehicle for setting up this new status quo. Yeah, there's not a lot of conflict with him in this issue, like no, with anybody. Because like even like you joined us for the for the Excalibur fifty seven episode where there was a lot of conflict between him and Scott. And you know, ostensibly it did mm -hmm. get resolved at the end of that, but here there's not even a hint of that ever being but yeah, I mean, I mean they're like, they, they yeah. share notes on on mm -hmm. holding teams together and your rosters disappearing under you due to editorial fiat mm -hmm. <laughs> i do like how hard kurt is working to make sword metaphors out of his speech <laughs> uh, uh. he like says that they have to be a scalpel cutting deep into the problems that oh fall between the cracks and then he then has to cut good. the blanket of intol and you're like Dude, there's too many pieces in that. That's not work. Oh Jesus! I I wonder what uh, I wonder how Arthurian scholars feel about Excalibur being downgraded to a scalpel. Yeah, that old closing speech is rough. I um, <laughs> I mean, I I feel like I should have something to say about the opening scene where he almost kills Spore. I mean, it's clearly supposed to be shocking, and I mean, it is shocking to the extent that you see a Nightcrawler go full full nineties. You know, like teeth out, you know, about mm. to kill a guy, you know, yelling. He's got all the 90s-ness going on there. And yet I almost feel like I don't have anything to say about it because it's just knowing Nightcrawler, I obviously know he wouldn't kill anybody and there must be something else going on there. So I don't really feel any real jeopardy. It's sort of like the character of Nightcrawler in terms of being a character who doesn't kill people is just so firmly established that even like the shock of pretending that might have happened didn't actually work for me. But I mean, how can I know? Because I'm reading this comic you know, knowing it doesn't happen. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I would have been shocked if I was reading it in the moment. I'm not sure. It might have worked for me a little bit more just because Colossus betrays everyone in this issue. You know what I mean? There's kind of a, a thread there. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean, but I guess maybe with there not being any setup you know like i mean when did yeah, kurt yeah. go evil i mean that didn't happen he has been appearing in the rest of the event acting totally normal and everything and being a peacemaker as usual so like this scene kind of comes out of nowhere and i mean again that's the point it's supposed to be shocking opening the issue and you're like what's going on here and i get it and i get all of that but still i'm just like again i feel like i should have more interesting to say about it than i do but i don't know i think my my attempt at a deep read on it is just like 
that it's almost like self-reflexively teasing the 90sification of nightcrawler and then being like <laughs> obviously this wouldn't happen it's nightcrawler come on let's move forward and then elsewhere in the issue like i did really like the sick burn that he has where he like is <laughs> like i can't tell the accolades apart you're all indistinguishable characters with flat personalities and i'm like well but that's also kind of a cell phone isn't it i mean lobdell's admitting that's how he writes them but you know that's funny <laughs> Cyclops has a great bit too where he blasts uh, Katu and he's mm-hmm. like, you know, someday I'd actually like to see you use yeah. your mutant power. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Rachel gets a good one too of like, everybody's got to have a dream. Put you on your ass. So, <laughs> there's a few good lines in this one. I don't know. Any other thoughts about Nightcrawler stuff? I like genuinely don't have a lot to say about it. I think Austin's right that he's just sort of, he's just sort of here in this issue predominantly. He's, he's continuity. That's, that's yeah. what he... He's continuity with the from the old book because you know, hey, we're keeping the X Men around and Kurt's an X Men and this is X Men UK. That's what this, that's what we're doing here, X Men UK. That's yeah, almost like he they're they're he's basically saying they're going to be Moira's X Men, which is mm. mildly interesting in sight of okay. later, much much later events. But uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I would love for that to be relevant to current events, and it is completely right. ignored as a point of continuity. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I don't like how it happened here because, again, this is so much happening. It makes total sense in continuity of Excalibur for them to go, you know what? Let's base ourselves on Mer Island with Moira. Like, that's where the characters were. They know her. There is a there is an interesting story. And I have no problem with the choice. The way it is executed by clear editorial mandate, because it's got to be done by the end of this book, feels like, you know, it happens so quickly and i think the most indicative thing of my problems with it is they're here on this mission because they had to be because magneto was back and they had to come along and do the fatal attractions thing that's how they got here right and in order to do this they had to leave their friends megan and farron in a coma they're just they're in comas like (laughs) under a waterfall and they had to leave (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then, which, you know, bad enough, but you know, Magneto's here, the world's on the line, you do what you have to do. But then when Gene and Scott and the professor are like, so do you guys want to ride back home? They're like, no, we're going to stay here and help Moira. (laughs) That's not how you move. That's not how moving works. (laughs) I've moved before. You don't just go to the new house and stay. You go home, you get all your stuff and you like, you know, like, like if I, like I have a cat. I gotta bring my cat, Lockie. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's things. Like, you have to <laughs> kitty's you have kitty's to go gonna back. go back, and kitty's gonna go back and yeah. get her bath doll. That's gonna happen, right? You've got to go. So, like, yes, I would like a ride back to my house, please. Thank you, Scott. That was really nice of you to offer. And then, like, I will, you know, pack my stuff in my jet and fly it here. Why are you staying there? Like, this makes no sense, and that bugged me. The better way for Love Dell to have done it is to have them say, "Oh, you want to come back to the X Men now?" No, all we're going to you know, set up no, here because we want to be proactive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that yeah. would have been better. Yeah. It's, oh, it's an easy fix. Yeah, I was going to say, Austin, it is an easy fix because, like, yeah, that would have fixed so much of... Because, I mean, although I can kind of... There are a lot of the conflicts between the X-Men and Excalibur had been ironed out by this point, so I don't think that that's on Lobdell. Like, that is what had been written. But right. still, it's like, I do find it more interesting, especially for the characterization of Nightcrawler, for there to be some tension there. And we've talked 
ad nauseum about the pod, you know, on the pod about his feelings of being a mascot and his feelings of inadequacy and his feelings of like wanting to have that independence. And he has at times been critical of Xavier as Kitty has been. And so like to have them here, just like the X-Men show up and Kitty and Kurt just like look at them with reverence when they show up. And like none of that <laughs> conflict is present, at least from Kurt's side. Of course, we see it with Kitty, which is which is good. Right. I like that that's that signposted with Kitty, but there's no conflicts with Kurt. He's just like, sure, like, of course, I'm an X-Men. Of course, I believe in the mission. Of course, everything's fine. And I mean, that's just not interesting in terms of like some of the stuff that had been set up for him. But I mean, again, I, I also kind of think it's defensible because we did have some issues that ostensibly ironed over those conflicts already. So, I mean, I'm sort it's of supposed to be a contrast with Peter, too. It's yeah. supposed to show you that Kurt is Kurt still believes in the dream even if Peter doesn't and it's just yeah. to show you and Kitty Kitty is disillusioned but in but in a different way than Peter is right so like i i get what he's going for it, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have some future stuff with with Kurt and Peter and their different personalities, so we'll get another mm -hmm. chance to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, let's move to some final thoughts, other stuff that we didn't get a chance to touch on. I'll come to you first, Andrew. Anything from this very packed, very loaded comic, this great comic, as you described it, that we didn't touch on, that you would like to make sure that we touch on, please go ahead. I don't want to complain for my final thought, because I feel like I'm, I'm holding down the fort here as best I can. Oh. But I, I will point out... <laughs> That, my, mine will be positive. If you, if you want to get one complaint, no, I'm, I'm going to go unabashedly positive. So, and, and maybe Austin can help with this one too, because I think this might be the first time we see it in Excalibur, where the illustration does that thing where um, the woman's costume is a thong but over tights. So yeah. they can get past the censors by saying that it's not a thong, but like that would probably be significantly less comfortable than a thong. And it kind of just, ah, it doesn't work. And it feels like a really cheap, salacious thing. And you can see the illustration, especially on Kitty. Um, I'm really laboring to draw that imagery out. Yeah, I mean, I definitely thought about that and considered bringing it up in this episode. I like we're going to be talking more about 90s art and some subsequent issues, which if anything, mm -hmm. get more extreme with some of these choices. But I was just really like, you feel like a broken record when you're a woman complaining about objectification in comics, especially when you're this woman who loves sexy comics. It is my favorite thing in the entire world. But it's just like some of these issues, these like images of Kitty and Jean. Like I'm looking at the splat, the half splash right now where Colossus is on the table and we've got Kitty's thong butt in the foreground. <laughs> and then like Jean with the like, her breasts are perfect cantaloupe circles that are placed on her chest completely irrespective of how fabric works at all and i'm just like telekinetic bra. i don't know yeah telekinesis she's got telekinesis she holds them in place it's constantly that's what she does she holds them <laughs> in place and changes the shape of them into being a shape that no human breasts in the entire world would ever be and again i get that it becomes complicated because we're complaining about impossible bodies here but it's still just like the way that the perfectly round breasts are just stuck on her body to like create an illusion of nakedness and like particularly mm -hmm. salacious nakedness but also like impossible plastic nakedness that like no woman looks like this and we're reducing her to an object to the degree that her breasts are like stick on idea of breasts that were just <laughs> putting onto her body i don't know it gets to me it does get to mm -hmm. me I, I can write it off as campy and kind of ignore it but i i'm not gonna lie it gets to me and that is partly why i don't have necessarily the same affection for this entire era of comics that i know some people do it we're gonna not we're gonna appeal to me at the time yeah. yeah i mean and and similarly just to just so we don't get comments yeah similar thing with with male characters 
Colossus makes no sense here. And yes, I get that his power is he's a super strong metal man, but that's that's not anatomy. I've taken anatomy classes. There are not muscles there. Those are like, I don't know what's going on with period. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be something that we're going to return to. We have a couple of guests coming on to talk specifically about um, sort of excesses of 90s art and like different meanings of objectification. I think we can make a lot of work of that in terms of the design of some bodies coming up. But um, but yeah, it it did bother me in this issue, Andrew. I'm not going to lie. But anyway, Mav, you had something positive to say. So please go ahead. The floor is yours. Um, First appearance of my favorite X-Man costume for Kitty. Um, yeah, she's got this one for a long she's time got, now. It is, uh, and I, I have reasons for it that I'll talk more about next issue because it's really just a splash page. The negative bit about it is it's 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 very much a we're making Kitty a '90s character now, and she she built this costume out of Scott's closet. But I don't care. It actually looks great. I think it is a. I, I think that if you are going to have a kitty that has grown up as an X Man and is trying to be an adult now, this costume makes perfect sense for her. It's not my favorite look for Kitty, but it's my favorite X Man costume for Kitty. I'll explain that more next episode if I remember. Um, my, <laughs> my favorite thing about that costume is that it has secret nunchucks in it. Yes, but there's so, 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 many, so many things I love about it. So many things, so many things I love about it. Um, I and again, I, I want to talk about it next next episode because next episode we will actually talk about you know show where throughout the comic instead of just on on this one <laughs> closing one splash, splash. with no with no explanation. But it is um I appreciate it. I mean, I remember getting to this page and going, well, that's new and that looks kind of awesome. And I stand by it. I actually think that with various variations that she's had over the years, I think that 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 is a perfect grown up costume for Kitty Pride. I think it is absolutely what she should be wearing in what her role as a member of Excalibur and later the X-Men going forward becomes. That is my as completely positive. I don't necessarily love the art, the the drawing for that, but I love that there that it was like, oh wow, well that's a thing, that's neat, and I absolutely love it. That's my. Positive. I just think I'm that a- if all the girls are going to have thong costumes, then all the boys should have the exact same thong costume. That's all I'm asking for. Um, I oh, I'm, I should point I out, no um, Nightcrawler has um a visible bulge at yes, one point. Oh, well, we're going to do it. Yeah, I was going to say I because I agree with Anna's assessment there. And sometimes they do some uh, on a good artist. I think they do. And I think that you know, I don't love the art for this panel. I think that in the same the same panel, I like that, you know, Kurt has the Nuthugger costume if you're going to do this. <laughs> I want to see the spandex on those male bodies so tight that Mm -hmm. we're seeing their nips through the spandex. Otherwise, we're not Mm -hmm. doing equal opportunity exploitation. I I do not disagree. (laughs) (laughs) I do not disagree. (laughs) We're going to talk more about it. Anyway, Mm -hmm. Austin, on that note, do you have any final thoughts for stuff that you would like to talk about that we didn't get a chance? Yeah, I guess the one thing I'll bring up, I mean, other than to say I may have come off more harsher on this issue than I intended. I do have a lot of affection for it. Parts are, I like the whole better than the parts, I guess. There's a lot of little things that I nitpick in it, Um, but I do generally uh, enjoy it. It's, you know, it's tough not to love your first. And so I do have some affection for it there. But having said that, I will end on another nitpick, uh, which (laughs) is that uh, I love that in the end, Colossus is not suffering from uh, brain injury, Mm. that they fix, they heal the wound and he's like, cool. (laughs) <laughs> but I still don't like you. I'm still going to the Acolytes. I love that. I love that they let him go and all that. But the Acolytes are 
deeply problematic at this point yeah. as far as I know Colossus hasn't done anything bad, but like the beginning of this crossover involved them killing a bunch of humans at a hospital. And so like you can let Colossus go, but maybe <laughs> capture the other ones that are with him that participated <laughs> in that massacre. I don't know. It just seems like any humans these acolytes kill after this are kind of on Excalibur and Scott and Jean's ha- hands at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the mischaracterization of Magneto earlier. I mean, that's my central issue with the whole Fatal Attractions event, because there's no true opposition being set up there. It's like, well, the one group is like committing objective, obvious genocide on page, and the other group's like, maybe you shouldn't do that. Choices, choices. (laughs) And I I love the, like, I love the point that that Colossus is trying to make here and in his argument for sticking with the acolytes that, you know, you and that Xavier and Magneto believe the same things. They just differ in in how to go about it. Except that when you're like, yes, but the side you're standing with now is their Mm -hmm. idea of go about it is kill lots of humans. Mm -hmm. This isn't like we need to get out the vote. No, we need to march in the streets. Like this is, there's two different, there's a gulf. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this time period, this 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 early '90s, uh, this is the beginning of people trying to make the argument that, because um, this is not a classic argument. People say this like it was always a classic argument, right? This is where people go, well, you know, Charles and Eric or Magnus at this time are what they're really doing is they are analogs for Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, two sides of the same coin, looking at different. No, they're not. That's highly reductive. That's not what Malcolm mm-hmm. uh, Malcolm X was like. It's not what Martin Luther King was like. It is a cartoon character version of them. It, it, it bugs right, me right. as a cultural theorist. Like you have to actually do the research to see that Martin Luther King was not the teddy bear that people portray him as, and Malcolm X was not a terrorist. That's not who they were. So it it's super reductive. But I also mm-hmm. think that it's what they were going for in the crossover. <laughs> like, so I think the writers yeah. didn't understand yeah. that and they were trying. And this is the beginning of trying to do that, trying to say, you know, we're doing nuance. Maybe the terrorist has a point, which I think is a story that you can do, but it doesn't make it done well. Like, not, it's not automatically just good. And that was well, yeah. It's like we were saying before. It's it's metaphor, but at its bluntest, simplest, yes. most <laughs> obvious level. So you're like, mm-hmm. okay, hat tip for trying. I mean, you got <laughs> the metaphor in there, but maybe work a little harder at it next time. Read a book, real book. <laughs> Do some research. <laughs> There's more to it. <laughs> Reading's important, kids. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> it's a good comic. <laughs> snuck that in there i I won't it won't edit that out i promise (laughs) stay away from me give me the sword please give it to me no the only place for it is the bottom of this lake So on that note, we will wrap things up. Austin, I'm so grateful to have your expertise on this issue to help us unpack all all of the many, many things going on in this comic. Before we go, we of course need to remind our lovely listeners again of all the awesome stuff you get up to. So where can people find you online, Austin? And what work, what projects, what podcasts, what anything should they be checking out? Uh, Yes, thanks again for having me. It was a blast coming back and talking about my first Excalibur. Um. You can find my reviews of all of these X books at the Real Gentleman 
realgentlemenofleisure.com uh, under the, the examinations heading uh, there. Uh, I have a Patreon page as well, patreon.com slash G-O-L. Uh, right now I am reviewing the classic X-Men backup stories from Claremont and John Bolton and just starting the fourth season of the X-Men animated series over there. Uh, otherwise, um, I'm writing pretty regularly for Comics XF. You can read my writing at Comic Book Herald. Um, had a couple pieces on uh, Shelf Dust recently and uh, non-comic book related stuff over on on uh, Polygon, writing about House of the Dragon and Andor, uh, the new Star Wars show. Got a couple pieces coming up there. And then my podcast uh, is a very special episode. Uh, Me and two friends, we talk about very special episodes of TV. We just got done with our uh, uh, summer theme marathon that was voted on by our listeners. We did uh, three episodes in which the characters go to Disney World. Oh, oh, those are always awesome. Yeah, they were. It was uh, it was a good time. Good summer. So that's uh, a very special episode. Podcast.com is our website. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, Spotify and all those podcast hosting places. Oh, that's awesome. I got to check that out. Oh, and such a good thing. You can follow me on Twitter at Austin Gorton. I'm tweeting out uh, the Jim Lee X-Men trading cards one a day right now. So come, come join in, join in the fun over there at Austin Gorton. Yes. I've been seeing your tweets about those. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much again, Austin. It's a pleasure to be here anytime. So next, the 90s keep coming in the dumb and wonderfully titled Excalibur number 72. Oh, Sienna. That's the title. (laughs) Co-starring, of course, upstart Sienna Blaze. We've got another awesome guest on tap to tackle all that radness. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes. You can find those on our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another totally awesome conversation. Thank you, Austin, for helping heal our head wounds. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought for Music for a truly epic theme song. Play us out. Thanks, everyone. That went to a lot of places. I mean, I guess that's appropriate. <laughs> this, this issue went to a lot of places. It's all over. <laughs>